regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long form and in-depth conversation with data and ML practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Hyun Kim, the co-founder and CEO of SuperBI, a machine learning data ops platform that helps competition teams automate and manage the entire data pipeline, from ingestion and labeling to data quality assessment and delivery. Hyun initially studied biomedical engineering and electrical engineering at Duke University, but he shifted from genetic engineering to robotics and deep learning. He then pursued a PhD in computer science at Duke with a focus on robotics and deep learning, but ended up taking a leap to further immerse himself in the world of AI R&D at a corporate research lab. During this time, he started to experiment the bottlenecks and obstacles that many companies still face to this day. Data labeling and management were very manual, and the available solutions were nowhere near sufficient. With that introduction out of the way, Hunt, it's my pleasure to chat uh, with you today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. So to start our, our conversation, I want to go back a little bit into your personal upbringing. So I believe that you were originally born in Korea, and then you grew up in Singapore, and you later went to the USA for college. So can you share a bit about your upbringing and experience living in three different countries? Yeah. So like you said, I was born in Seoul, Korea. I moved to Singapore when I was 12 years old. Our family moved together for my dad's work. And then initially, I lived in Singapore for about two years, came back to Korea for one year, and then went back again to Singapore. And then the second time, I lived there for five years. So total, spent about seven years in Singapore. And then right after graduating high school, I went to Duke University for my undergrad. I think, you know, it's a rare experience and something that I... I'm very grateful for that experience, you know, living in three countries, not many people do that. And especially Singapore, I don't know if you know much about Singapore, but Singapore is known for like the diversity in culture. There are a lot of, you know, people from uh, diverse background, like you know, Asia, US, Europe, Africa, you know, wherever. And you know, just being able to blend into that you know, cultural mix from my young age. I think that basically opened up my eyes to be more like global and, you know, my future pursuit of my career. That, that's my take on my upbringing. So it sounds like you living in this different culture allows you to absorb that diverse perspective and having that global mindset growing up, right? Yep, that's right. I'm just curious, why did you decide to go to the U.S. for college? So I went to a school called Singapore American School. So there are several international schools in Singapore. For example, there's American school, there's British school, Canadian school, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I thought for my education, like higher education for my college and grad school, I think, you know, United States was the obvious choice for me. So that's why I went to Singapore American school and it naturally led to 
or applied to U.S. universities. Thanks for sharing that decision to study the U.S. So for your undergrad, you went to Duke University, and initially yeah. you were majoring in biomedical and engineering. But then later, you shifted your focus from genetic engineering to robotics and deep learning. How would you describe your overall academic experience at Duke? Initially, for my freshman year, I decided to major biomedical engineering. You know, since my junior senior years at high school, I was interested in bioengineering genetics, and that led me to apply to university programs in biomedical or bioengineering. And you know, Duke. I would say Duke is a university that's very open for undergrads volunteering in like research labs. So from my freshman year, I volunteered in you know, research labs, and my first one was obviously in genetics. My research was in you know, genetic engineering. Currently, you know, it's it's a very popular technique called CRISPR and Cas, and I researched a little bit into that, and then. Uh, after my freshman year, I actually took a leave for two years and went back to Korea for uh, military service. And then after I came back for my sophomore year, I saw the rise of you know these you know, computer programming and computer science. How that's like disrupting a lot of the other domains. One of them being like genetic engineering. There were a lot of like programming, or simulations, modeling that gets involved in genetic engineering. And then another cause for me to switch from genetics or biomedical engineering to electrical engineering was I spent a year in a you know genetics lab trying to engineer like bacteria and yeast to produce like whatever chemical that I wanted to and my experience basically failed for the entire year and it was very very difficult to debug or fix or pinpoint you know where I went wrong and that frustration got me into like automation, right? You know, I was spending a lot of time doing like repetitive and pipetting, running experiments. And I thought most of that could be automated using some kind of machine, right? So that led me into, you know, computer science, automation, robotics, machine learning, and so on. So junior year, I started to volunteer at a research lab that worked on the intersection between biomedical engineering and computer science. And it was a medical imaging, medical imaging machine learning research lab. So there I researched on using machine learning and deep learning to help analyze brain MRI images. And then a year into that, I then shifted focus to robotics. Initially it was medical robots, like surgical robots. And then for my PhD, my grad school, I applied to a bunch of robotics and machine learning programs and decided to stay at Duke for my PhD. And for my PhD studies, I studied robotics and computer vision. Yeah, thanks for sharing that kind of evolution of your academic interest throughout your time at Duke. And it sounds like it all stemmed from that frustration of being at that research lab in your sophomore year, conducting a lot of experiments and not getting good results, and that's uh, ignite your interest in automation, computer science, robotics, and this whole new academic movement in machine learning, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I actually forgot to mention, um, before doing medical imaging was I spent a little bit of my time in a microfluidics lab. It's called lab on a chip. So you have like a chip to run these like experiments automatically. And, you know, 
that was fun, but I think that was too much of like electrical engineering for me. So I shifted to medical imaging. You did mention a little bit about that research in MRI during your junior, I believe, and that's your paper I found out and we're looking a little bit at that. Mm-hmm. Most specifically, you were using ML to help diagnose Parkinson's disease, right? Using brain MRI scan, just to be specific. Kind of stepping back into that moment a little bit, can you share a little bit of detail on how you like got a real taste of the game-changing potential deep learning from this experience? Yeah. So my research was for what's called deep brain stimulation. And it's a way to treat Parkinson's disease. The way you do it, basically neurosurgeons will insert like metal rods to the patient's brain. It's a particular area of the patient's brain. And then use that metal rod to give like electrical stimulation to the brain. That's like one way to treat Parkinson's disease. Now, the problem with that was basically the neurosurgeons will have to, you know, use their best guess as to like where in the brain should they insert the metal rods into. And then if that failed, the fatality rate was pretty high. So, you know, I was trying to better predict regions within the brain where the neurosurgeon should target. And previously, myself and my colleagues used non-deep learning techniques, like random forest was something that was very popular back then. And, you know, we did a bunch of experiments on random forests, tried to make performance improvements. And then right around then, we saw another research lab that worked on a similar problem using deep learning, computer vision, deep learning, using convolutional neural nets, just, you know, outperforming anything that we had. And then that got me into the whole neural network, convolutional neural net, deep learning kind of thing. And I did some, you know, research, studying, and it was very clear to me that, you know, from like 2014, 13, you know, CNN were basically outperforming everything on computer vision tasks. That was pretty clear to me. And that was, you know, quite shocking. And that's when I realized that, hey, you know, deep learning, this is, you know, real deal. There's real substance to this. And I decided to pursue my PhD in deep learning and robotics after that. Thanks for sharing that experience. So I'm just curious, kind of switching academic interest from biomedical engineering to computer science is quite a big transition. How do you like level up your coding knowledge to be able to be proficient at your new major and even eventually ending up pursuing a PhD program? So even for biomedical engineering major, I was exposed to computer programming, mostly like MATLAB rather than like Java or Python or C++. So I had that initial exposure to MATLAB programming. And then after coming back from you know, my military service, sophomore year, I started taking classes in computer science. So at Duke, my second major, it's called electrical and computer engineering. So it's, it's not just electrical engineering. It does have that computer engineering component. I was exposed to these programming early on. And then especially for machine learning, the first course that I took was Andrew Ng's Coursera machine learning. So that was like back in 2013, 2014. And then after that course, I just like sat in a bunch of like grad school courses in machine learning. I don't think I understood. I think I catch like less than 20% of anything, but you know, you know, I just like sat in there, you know, just trying to absorb as much as possible. 
Thanks for sharing that context a little bit. So you mentioned you end up staying at Duke for a PhD program in computer science, and I believe you also work as a research assistant at the Intelligent Robot Lab. Just out of curiosity, like what motivated you to pursue the PhD part after you finished your undergrad? Good question. So after you know my junior year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after graduating. So I talked to a bunch of people that you know, pursued different careers. You know, people that were like pre-med that went into you know become doctors, people that went to like law school to you know practice law in like tech sectors. Also talked to like professors or academics. Also went to people that went into pursue their career in industry and so on and so forth. And after talking with all of these people, it was pretty clear to me that pursuing a PhD was the right thing to do for me. And the thing that really resonated with me was someone told me that if I don't hate studying, then I might just as well do a pursue PhD and then do whatever that I want to do after that, whether it's you know, working for industry, staying academics, you know, or whatever, you know, doing a PhD, if, if it's not too hurtful to you, then, you know, you should do it. That was the advice that I got. And, you know, at that point, I liked learning new things. I liked, you know, studying, you know, I got good, good grades. And I think, you know, that was a natural progression to my PhD. But then that also came back to haunt me about a year into my PhD, because I don't think any of my lab mates came directly after their undergrad. They all went to industry. You know, they worked at the industry for a couple of years. So they knew what they wanted to work on during their PhD. Whereas for myself, I didn't have that. So I was basically you know, interested in robotics, automation, deep learning, but I didn't have any like, particular research topic in mind when going into the PhD program. So I had to you know, discuss with my PhD advisor on, hey, like, what's a cool topic to work on? And you know, I don't think that's enough of a motivation to like, keep you going for like five, six years during your PhD. And then, you know, as you know, I ended up you know, taking a leave after one year. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context a little bit. It sounds like one of the advice that you would give for people who want to pursue a PhD is like they should have like a pretty clear research direction that they want to pursue before even enrolling into the program. Otherwise, yeah. they, they might be directionless and not sustaining enough motivation to persevere through that long period. Yeah, I think I should have maybe pursued an internship at least during my undergrad and see what the industry is working on or maybe do a master's first. But that would be the kind of advice that I would give. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You spent about like one year as a PhD student, but I believe that during that time, you also participate in the 2016 Amazon Robotics Challenge as the leader of Team Duke and its motion planning mm-hmm. function. What were you working on during that challenge? So the Amazon Robotics Challenge, I think they changed their name right now. The challenge is basically to engineer a robot that a company like Amazon could use for their warehouse. Whenever you know Amazon receives an order request from one of their clients, there will be someone working at the warehouse, you know, picking up these items from the bins and then like packing that into a box and then shipping it, right? So Amazon wants to automate all that process with robots. So 
we were trying to build a robot that can do that. So given a list of items, the robot would like go into these bins and like pick up these items and then like start packing that. That was the whole competition. And I was in charge of the motion planning function. So motion planning is where, you know, you plan how much you should move each joint of the robot and what sequence in order to like reach a certain point in the bin without basically avoiding any collisions. That's the whole point of motion planning. I was in charge of that and also in charge of like leading the entire team throughout the competition. I see. I suppose like this experience kind of expose you to how to design like multiple complex system together, right? Like ranging from motion planning algorithms to implementing this computation models into hardware device. Yeah. So there were three components to the whole team. Motion planning, there's computer vision or perception, and then there's hardware. So I saw the challenges to like putting all of these different pieces together as a whole package. It was pretty fun. Interesting that. So you already talked a little bit about the like of research direction made you leave the PhD program after one year. And in fact, you went back to Korea to work for about two years as a machining research engineer at the AI Research Lab of SK Telecom, which is a major Korean conglomerate. What motivated you to go back and make this correction and work at this research lab? Yeah, so it has to do with a couple of things. One is my upbringing. I discussed this earlier. I was born in Korea, raised in Singapore. So even though I consider myself Korean, I haven't had much experience in Korea. And I always wanted to have that experience, you know, see what it's like to work in Korea at a Korean company. So that was one of the motivations. The second was, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't really know what I wanted to research on during my PhD. So I wanted some industry experience to find it out. And then thirdly, in 2016, there was the AlphaGo in Korea, Google versus Korean Go master Lisa Do. And after that, there was a huge shock across the entire country in Korea. Basically, you know, saying we should invest more into AI. And that's when a lot of these companies like SK or Samsung, LG, these companies started investing a lot into AI. So that you know, opened up a lot of opportunities for me. So all of these, you know, three motivations, you know, came together and you know, I decided to take a leave. Yeah, I see. The desire to work in a current company, the like a research direction that like for your PhD program, as well as sort of the national interest in AI investment, right? So those are the things that combine together, motivate you to make that switch back from your PhD program to Korea. So the plan was to take a leave for like one year and mm-hmm. then come back to my PhD program with a you know, much clearer sense as to like what I wanted to do my PhD on. But then, you know, it ended up being two years of leave of absence and then ended up not ever going back to complete my PhD. Talking more about your two years working as a research engineer there, I believe you did some research on a variety of AI topics, such as game AI, as well as synthetic image generation. Can you reflect more on those research? So the team that I was part of, I was in charge of more state-of-the-art research rather than applying things to the industry. 
So one of the topics that I worked on was StarCraft AI. So, you know, the game of Go, you know, there are a few characteristics. It's a, like a turn-based game. And another thing is there's full visibility into the entire game. Whereas for StarCraft, if you, you know, ever played StarCraft, you know, you don't have full visibility and that it's not like turn-based. It's a real time, like both players or all players, you know, play at the same time. So those kind of things make this a more challenging problem compared to Go. So like now, now Go is solved. Next challenge is StarCraft AI, right? So there were two major topics that we worked on for StarCraft. One was high level like strategy planning. So that's like trying to figure out what kind of strategy the opponent is playing, what's a good counter strategy for that, right? And then the second big topic was like, how to fight these battles? How do you better control your units? So the latter was more like reinforcement learning, control like multi-agent uh, reinforcement learning. And, you know, both of these projects were quite fun and enjoyable. I enjoyed it a lot. And then the second big project I worked on was synthetic image generation. Back then, GAN, Generative Adversarial Networks, was a, a big thing. So we try to use that to create synthetic images. That was a fun project too. Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing that. Just on that note about doing more research, you push state of the art. I'm curious, you have experience doing research back in Korea Research Lab, as well as doing your PhD in the US. Do you see any differences just in terms of the way research being conducted? So I wouldn't put it as the like US versus Korea, but more like academia versus industry. Mm -hmm. So academia, I think there's more flexibility and freedom as to like what you work on, as long as it's something new and has impact on the entire academic research community. It's something that's valuable. Whereas in the industry, you need to consider industrial impact or can the research be applied to any of the products that the company is offering or does it align with the company's longer term direction, right? Like the team was set up to you know, pursue state-of-the-art AI research, but it didn't have like full flexibility or freedom on like a topic of the research. I mean, you know, it has pros and cons. One side is more freedom and flexibility versus the other is more constrained more to the business impact of the yeah. bigger organization. After two years of working at a Telecom, instead of returning to school to finish your PhD program at Duke, you left to start a startup named SuperPI. Can you share the funny story of the company? So both during my PhD and during the two years at SK, I worked on various research projects like you know, robotics, StarCraft AI, synthetic image generation, so on and so forth. And you know, during all of these projects, it was very clear to me that I was spending a lot of time on data rather than running experiments or writing research papers. And that was also the case for basically anybody else that I saw in the you know, AI community. And I thought, you know, research engineers and researchers spending a lot of time with data was, you know, it's, it's a huge time suck and, and a huge inefficiency for the entire AI community. So I wanted to solve this problem. And I saw like, some new techniques and technologies in AI that I thought were you know, becoming more mature and mature enough to be 
able to you know be applied to like a real world product and services. So I saw that opportunity, I saw that problem, and you know sorry to start a company to you know tackle that problem. And luckily, I had some good colleagues around me at the time. So I started you know trying to persuade everyone that was on my team. Hey, do you want to start this company with me? And you know, luckily, I was able to persuade a couple, and you know, those are co-founders. And talking more about that co-founders relationship a little bit, how did the early days of the company looks like? How did the founding team sort of divide and conquer different responsibilities? Yeah, so we have five co-founders, including myself. All five co-founders are still at the company. One of the five co-founders it was pretty clear to everyone that. He should be like a you know, sales person. Right? He was the more people-oriented, outgoing person. So we'll, you know, he's, he's going to take the business side of things. Amongst the four remaining co-founders, I think the three, excluding myself, were more technical. They had more programming, AI, you know, research and engineering experience. So they'll take the you know, product and engineering side of things. As for myself, you know, I have the you know global experience. I do have you know exposure to a variety of different fields in technology, whether it's you know, bioengineering, robotics, medical imaging, machine learning, you know, so on and so forth. So those kind of things combined, we thought that I would be the person that should be doing the overall you know strategy and fundraising and you know just you know, company building and you know just. We thought to ourselves that you know, we should be a global company. We should be targeting the global audience, the global industry, and that was our target from like day one. That was you know my responsibility from the get go. That's very interesting. Just kind of double clicking on that part about having a global mindset from day one. Is that a common thing for Korean startup, or why did you you know the founding team decide to have that global mindset? I don't think that's common. But I definitely think a challenge that you know, every Korean company will face at some point in time as they grow, because you know the market size is limited if you just target the Korean market. And as for ourselves, you know we're a company that helps other companies build machine learning and AI. So the biggest market was obviously the U.S. and the Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So you know from day one we. We're determined to have our presence in the U.S., both in U.S. and Korea, and that's why you know we worked to mm-hmm. set up our headquarters in the U.S. Yeah, we'll circle back into this part about building global team later on in our conversation. We touch on the point about setting up in the U.S. market a little bit. So the company was started around sort of mid 2018, and then I believe in the winter 2019. Supervi went through the Y Combinator batch, which is a very famous and well-known startup accelerator here in the US. How would you describe this experience going to YC? So I think we were pretty lucky to, you know, I've been accepted to Y Combinator on our first try. I think you know, a lot of startup founders they apply several times to get into YC. So we're pretty lucky, and I think the whole process of applying to YC, going through the YC program, both of those were very good learning experience for us. I don't know if you ever saw the YC application. They ask very weird questions. (laughs) And it basically forces you to think differently. 
And then I still remember like the first week of the actual YC program, the first assignment that I got was basically come up with a plan on how your company can be a billion dollar startup, right? And as a startup founder or founder of a startup that's been around for like six months, right? You don't always think about that. <laughs> you think about like how to land your first customer, like how to build your first product, right? That's the kind of thing that your mind gets bogged down on. But then, you know, they force you to think big, think long-term, like how do you build a billion, billion dollar company, right? So that was an interesting assignment. And then throughout the three months of the YC program, they teach you a lot of things from like technical or skills, like, like how to hire, how to fundraise, or how to build a product, how to pitch your product, you know, how to price your product, things like that. But, you know, I think the more important lesson was the overall like entrepreneurship mindset, like startup founder mindset, you know, Talking to these like successful founders during our batch, we had Airbnb co-founder, PagerDuty co-founder, Stripe co-founder. They come to our batch and like give speeches, and then also of course like Paul Graham come to our batch and you know, give a talk. And like from these talks, it basically gives you like the better mind model of you know how to approach things. I think that was the more valuable lesson that I got from YC. Yeah. So like absorbing that ownership mindset of yeah. how you run a startup just by yeah. hearing the stories of people who have done it. Do you have like a favorite, like a startup founders from YC or even in general that you take a lot of inspiration from? Hmm. Good question. I don't have a particular person in mind, but I do read a lot of these posts that you know some of these founders upload to their like twitter or blogs so stripe co-founders and then not just founders but also like these great investors in the bay area that invest into these founders they write a lot of great blog posts on like what makes a you know successful company or successful founder so that's very helpful And I believe like YC is a pretty good network to have, you know, as a startup founder, right? Is the network of, you know, the YC founders and, you know, people want through it, is that benefit of SuperBI as the companies finding some of the early, you know, design partners and things like that? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about some of those a little bit later on, but I think because we're already in this topic, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So the YC community is very, very powerful and very helpful to get your startup you know, up and running. Some of the things that I found valuable was, you know, being able to reach out to other founders that have been through the same, you know, issues and problems that I'm going through. I can just like reach out to them and ask for advice, or, you know, I can just like post something to the community and like someone will just like jump on and you know, give advice. So that's very helpful. The investor network is very helpful for raising the initial funding, the seed round. So we had a demo day and then after demo day, we have the investors contact us that got our seed round started. And then also there are just like a lot of technical advice on the YC community that's either written by the YC organizers or like some of the more successful founders. So those are very helpful. And then I think a lot of these like technical advice is geared towards more like seed round or series a stage companies 
And as the company grows like Series B, Series C, I think you sort of kind of like graduate from the advice that YC gives you. But then, you know, these founders of much larger companies, they still stay in the community, stay in the YC community to like pay it forward. That's a beautiful uh, nature of the, of the community then. So let's talk more about the actual product of SuperPay. Super provide a data labeling platform to help community vision practitioners create and manage data at scale thanks to offerings in data analysis tools, intelligent automation, as well as project management capabilities, which are unpacking the evolution of the labeling platform since its initial inception. So the initial inception was we didn't have a platform from day one. Right? The first thing that we built was automatic data labeling algorithm. And with that algorithm, our first business or our first client was we'll get these raw data, raw images from our client. We'll run our internal in-house algorithm. We'll have someone edit or review the output of these automatic data labeling algorithm. And then we'll you know, send you the results, then the client's results. So that was our first business model. And this was even before getting into IC. I think we had about three clients before getting into IC. We had some revenue. And then it was after YC, during our seed round fundraise, that we decided to add the platform component to our business. We saw a lot of companies were labeling data, but then there was also a big pain point where these companies were just gathering so much label data, but there's no way to manage or collaborate around the you know, label data. So... That's when we decided to add in the platform capabilities. So that's for data management, data labeling tool, and also you know, collaboration tools. First was the automatic data labeling algorithm, and then came in the data management platform. And then we added the algorithm into the platform as a feature. So that's how we added more features to the platform. And then after that comes a lot of a whole set of new features, more recent features, like, you know, being able to train models on our platform. And then I think we'll get into that in a bit, like data ops features that are geared more towards ML engineers. Thanks for talking about that initial, you know, starting out with the algorithms and almost graduating into the platform. The initial platform is called SuperBI Suite. It was launched in December 2019, I believe. Mm-hmm. Throughout this whole period of 2019, 2020, it's the first way you and the team developed the product and iterated it over time, right? As you build the product, how did you and the engineering team think about adding new features into it? The question is really, how do you prioritize product roadmap, especially throughout this period? Yeah, that's a good question. We try to focus on answering this question. So like, what's the biggest pain point in the industry right now? And the answers to that will drive our product roadmap. So, for example, when we first started, one of the biggest pain points that I saw was data labeling. People were relying on cross-sourced manual labeling, and it was taking a long time. So we tried to fix that problem with automatic data labeling. And then, like I mentioned earlier, another big pain point right around 2019-2020 was data management. So... There was no, you know, tool to manage like millions of labeled image data. So we came up with that. And then, you know, after that was things like, for example, reviewing and auditing labeled data. People are trying to you know, manually inspect every single labeled image. 
but that's not you know very efficient. So that's when we came up with an automated way to review and audit label data and then so on and so forth. So that's how I think about it or how the engineering team thinks about building the product roadmap. Yeah, I see. So just really have a lot of conversation with practitioners in the field to understand the needs of them and then using those feedback. Yeah, talking to practitioners, talking to clients, and then just, you know, talking to clients, talking to prospects that helps us identify the pain points in the industry. And then we try to solve that either using a good, you know, UI, UX product, or maybe sometimes we revert to automation to Mm. Yeah. And just continuing that thread about automation, I want to zoom into this automated labeling feature. So SuperBI labeling platform has this very powerful capabilities called custom auto label, CAR for short, which utilized cutting edge techniques to automatically detect and label common on each objects in images and videos. Can you discuss the techniques that power custom auto labels under the hood? Yeah without going into like too much detail. So the whole point of custom auto label is there are a lot of like, off the shelf pre-trained models for like, identifying or labeling common objects. But then most of our clients or most practitioners, they work with very niche data set. For example, for manufacturing, they might want to identify like scratches on like like metal plates or like soldering, there are a bunch of applications that you know use for niche data set. Even if it's very common objects, the viewpoint might be different. It might not be like you know eye level. It might be very like tops down. For example, like physical security surveillance application, it's going to be a very tops down angle. And you know for all of these cases, a typical off the shelf model it's not going to work very well. So there's a need for these companies to quickly train models using a small batch of label data to train a model and then use that to leverage that to you know, semi-automate the data labeling process. So that means we need to be able to train models using a very small number of labeled samples. So that leads to you know, few shot learning or even like zero shot learning kind of mm-hmm. techniques and also transfer learning to leverage pre-trained models that are trained on a different uh, data set. And then also we want anybody, even someone without any machine learning background to be able to train models and apply that to the data labeling pipeline. So that means we also need to build more auto ML capabilities. So the users don't have to tune these like hyperparameters to obtain a good performing model, we'll do that for the clients using mm-hmm. AutoML techniques. And then on top of that, I mentioned this earlier, we also provide automation techniques for reviewing or auditing the label data. So that means the auto-label AI will have to score or evaluate itself on how certain or uncertain it is about its own output. So if, an, if a model you know, labels an image and then says, hey, I label this image, but I'm not quite sure if this is correct. We'll you know have that score and show that to our users so that the users will you know be able to you know, sort or filter by that you know, uncertainty score and just you know focus on reviewing the images that have very high you know uncertainty score. So 
those are some of the techniques that go into custom memory label. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch more, but I think those are the major ones. And uh, Superbad Block have a bunch of content that talk more about the details of these algorithms that power custom multiple underhood that be sure to include into show notes. So, you know, we can learn more about those. Follow up on the second part you mentioned about using automation to review and audit labels of these images, right? Just out of curiosity, can you maybe talk more about like, why is it a difficult thing for like human to like manually review and audit these labels and what yeah. matters, you know, machining is powerful in this scenario? Yeah. So without <clears throat> any automation, what we need to do or what our clients need to do is either go through every single labeled image manually and like visually inspect if all the labels are correct. Either that, or if that's too expensive, then they will resort to like random sampling. They'll sample like 1% or 10% of the data and then do the same manual review. You know, this is very, you know, a naive approach and it's expensive, takes a long time. So there's a lot of benefit to automating this. There are two ways to automate this or the two ways that we automate this. One is like I just mentioned, when we run custom auto label, we'll do what's called uncertainty estimation using innovation deep learning techniques. And this will score how certain or uncertain the AI is with its own output. And then that will help our clients better sample their data set. So they'll have a better sample images that they should, you know, prioritize on. It's much better sample than, you know, that random sampling, right? So that's one way that we support automating label ordering. The second way is something that's called um, mislabel detection. Basically, we use AI models to pinpoint images or objects that we think are mislabeled. And that helps users, you know, review those first rather than, you know, random sampling. So it's, again, it's a much better way to sample and review your data set. Absolutely. Thanks for clarifying on those use cases of automation for label quality. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of the evolution of Super products offering. And recently, you know, Super released a new data ops platform product that helps competition teams to build and curate remarkable data sets thanks to a variety of, you know, features such as mislabel and HK detection training and tested curation and embedding store, just to name a few of them. I'm just curious, what are some of the data-centric problems in computation that this DataOps product is built to solve? So our first product, which is the Spurb AI labeling platform, was geared towards building or labeling data sets more efficiently, labeling and auditing data sets more efficiently. And the DataOps product, it's geared more for machine learning engineers that want to analyze labeled data sets or even the raw data sets that, you know, before labeling them. So let's say, you know, you're a self-driving startup, you collect like you know, terabytes of data every day, right? And there's no point in labeling every single one of those images. So you want to be able to analyze your data set and see which type of images you need to add to your labeled data set. And that's one of the things that we want to solve with the DataOps platform. So being able to analyze the distribution of your data set, see if there are any gaps within your data set that will lead to degradation in model performance if you, you know, use that data set to train a model. 
So we can like, identify those gaps in advance before you train the model and help our users fill those gaps. So that's one way, one of the problems that we want to solve with data ops. Another thing is, let's say you have a labeled data set. And then, you know, if you just you know, blindly split, randomly split like 20% of your labeled data set as a you know, test set and the remaining 80% as a train set, that's not the ideal split. We want to provide our users, you know, a way to better utilize their labeled data set by, you know, giving them the optimal split between the training and test set. So that's, that's another feature that we provide for the data ops. And then again, the mislabeled detection, it's part of our data ops beta right now. But I think uh, at some point we'll move that feature from data ops to data labeling platform, because it's more for data labeling purposes. So yeah, that's some of the features that we provide. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that data ops, it have tackled some of the problem that the AI community at large is experiencing, right? Especially with this whole movement of data-centric AI that has been buzzing in the past one or two years or so. Could mind sharing a little bit of your own perspective on data-centric AI and how does companies, ML tooling company, can help tackle some of the problem that being brought up by this movement? Yeah, so one of the things that Andrew mentioned was we should move away from big data but rather good data. Some of the industry applications of AI, there is inherent lack of data. So it's impossible to gather like millions and millions of images for certain applications. So for those cases, you know, we help our clients figure out like if they're gonna collect say like a thousand images, what kind of images should they be, right? That's one way we tackle the data-centric AI problem. And then also for, applications that have abundant data, like you know, self-driving, not all data is made equal in terms of value add to training the models. So being able to pick out you know, which image or which raw data will be more valuable for the model, and then just you know labeling those selected raw images, I think that's going to be a more much more efficient way to train models and approach, you know, machine learning development in a more data-centric perspective. Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective and excited to see how Superf can be part of the pioneer to move this whole movement forward for the community in the next decade or so. As we, in this discussion about industry trends at large, looking at the current industry-wide pain points, what are some of the future development ideas for Superf AI's product roadmap? So as we... You know, I've been doing so for the past four or five years. I think our product roadmap will always address what's the biggest pain point in the industry. We'll have to see what the pain point is in the next few years. But some ideas that I have, you know, could be, for example, as AI technology gets adopted in more traditional industries like you know, manufacturing, agriculture, so on and so forth, these companies, they don't have you know, as many machine learning engineers as compared to like more tech savvy industries. So there's a need for, you know, how can I train models and deploy models without any, you know, machine learning engineers. So we may be able to address, you know, that kind of pain point, whether it's by ourselves or, you know, in conjunction with other startups that's tackling the whole, you know, ML ops, data ops sector. Another possible option for our product is 
the data collection side of things, whether it's like real raw data coming from like edge devices, that's one option, or you know, synthetic images, synthetic data. It's something that a lot of startups are tackling right now. We'll have to see how much value that brings in terms of like being able to train models and improve model performance. But if that's, you know, if we decide that it's something that's valuable, then we might do something in that area, whether using you know, some kind of partnership with other companies or building something in-house. So those are some of the ideas that are you know, being tossed around amongst the R&D department. Both from the whole machine development side of thing, as well as the upstream task of data collection, there's definitely room for thinking about the way the current product is designed and expand, right? You mentioned a little about how machine learning and AI in general can be bringing to more industry and clients for the next few years. SuperAI on its own has clients of varying size across many different verticals. Can you highlight some use cases that you're most proud of? Yeah. So the use case that I am most proud of, I can't mention the name of the company, but it's a company that like manufactures products for like, Samsung Electronics. And... Their big pain point was they have been manually inspecting these like products for like product defects, whether it's like you know electrical like soldering, whether it's like packaging, like rubber packaging, whatever it is, they've been you know relying on just like manual workforce to like find these defects in their factories. And interestingly, they don't have any like machine learning background. I think they have like one engineer that sort of knows machine learning. And they were able to purchase our platform. And by using our platform, they were basically able to train models from scratch with like zero knowledge in machine learning. They trained the models successfully. They deployed that to one of their like assembly lines in one of their factories. And they been seeing you know some success in that they've been seeing you know our ai models catching errors or product defects that their human workforce weren't able to detect and they were able to so improve their assembly lines you know accuracy and you know become more efficient as a company so i think there's not only the fact that there's a huge opportunity in expanding that application to multiple different factories multiple different you know, companies in, in the industrial manufacturing sector. But the fact that, you know, they were able to implement AI without any knowledge in AI, I think that speaks a lot to our mission, our vision of democratizing AI. Going back to our mission statement, democratizing AI, the whole point of that is to lower the entrance barrier to the AI technology so that more people, more companies can adopt AI and build AI more efficiently. And I think, you know, this use case, this one client that I'm talking about, you know, speaks a lot to that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for talking about examples of the manufacturing industry as well as touch on the company's mission of democratizing AI access to a variety of non-technical industry. I think one thing that we talked about a bit earlier, you mentioned when we talked about roadmap a little bit, which is conjunction a super product with other ML solution in the market, right? So Superb has continued to be a key partnership with leading ML solution company like Pachyderm, Wildlabs, NRI, just to name a few of them. 
how do you see SuperBI fit into the quickly evolving AI infrastructure ecosystem? I think the ML ops problem is too big of a problem for a single company to solve. So these startups need to come together and form partnerships. And like one of those partnerships is AI infrastructure alliance that we're part of, basically trying to come up with a canonical stack for machine learning. And we don't have that canonical stack right now for machine learning like we do for example for DevOps. But as a company, we're trying to partner up with companies like Packetar and Wildlife Surprise, provide our clients a more streamlined way to integrate or use these multiple products more seamlessly. And the way I'm imagining is a lot of these MLOps solutions, they kind of assume that the company or that client already has some sort of you know, label data or trained models. You know, for example, like model monitoring platforms, they'll require the client to have some type of model already trained in production, deployed, right? And for example, like data pipelining companies, they assume that you know the companies will have already gathered you know some data set, right? So I want SuperAI to be the warehouse for all of the data, whether it's raw data or label data. And then it will integrate with all of these like data pipelining or model training or model deployment services. Sort of think of it as like GitHub for DevOps. You know, GitHub had all the software code in it. That's why a lot of these DevOps tools, they were integrated with GitHub or GitLab. That's how I see the MLOps industry and our role in it. I see. Thanks for clarifying on those ideas and how you know, Super can work with these different vendors and become that foundation, right, for the whole MLOps stack and be a place where, you know, people can get data and store data and encode data, especially for computer use cases. And uh, definitely excited to see how, you know, this whole current stack can evolve as well as how Super can be a meaningful player slash component of the stack. So let's take off your product hat and put on your company building hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about SuperBI's mission? So two things come to mind. One is building a great company culture. So I think there could be you know, ups and downs to a company's growth. You know, ideally, the company will like grow every single year, but then you know, more realistically, there will be ups and downs. And you know, to have the team, you know, continuously be motivated. I think, you know, having a great culture will help the team basically survive the downsides of the company, right? And building a great culture that requires a lot of different things. For example, we need to hire the right people that will continue to keep and improve upon the current culture. It needs a lot of, not just things like company core value, you know, every single company has like the mission statement, core value, blah, blah, blah. But it's more like, does the CEO and this uh, you know, leadership team, do they actually have these you know, core values ingrained into their day-to-day lives? And I think that will trickle down to the entire company. So those kind of things I try to spend a lot of time on. And also... One interesting challenge for us is since we're a global company, we have you know offices across three different countries, three different time zones, actually two different time zones because Korea, Japan is the same time zone. Anyways, three different languages. 
you know, that adds another layer of challenges. Someone in the US will have to collaborate with someone in Japan and someone in Korea. It's not going to be real time. It's going to be over Zoom. And you can't do that without great culture to bring everyone together. So that's something that I personally spend a lot of my time on, diagnosing are there any things that are not going very well? How can we address that? How can we you know, improve our culture? How can we hire better people? So on and so forth. So that's, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The other one is I think it's very important for me to empower others. And especially for leadership team, obviously, you know, I don't have like 30 years of industry experience in like sales, marketing, strategy, finance, blah, blah, blah. I don't have that experience. So it's my job to hire someone that's much better than me in all of these departments or sectors. And it's my job to empower them once I hire them. Occasionally, I'll give them my take on things, my thoughts. I'll share them. But I think I should be able to empower them and give them the safety to make decisions on their own and more responsibility. I think that's very important. And hopefully I've been doing that pretty well. But it's something that I keep trying to get feedback from my direct reports. Hey, am I empowering you enough? Is there anything that I can do to facilitate whatever you're doing? That's something that I keep asking. Yeah, absolutely. First part is ensuring great comedy culture across different time zones and languages. And the second part is empowering the executive officer employees to show the best version of themselves. As you understand, you know, there are limited knowledge in that respective domain and you can offer your perspective, but ultimately it's up to the executives or the employees to make the decision, right? Yeah. Just kind of touching on that first part about cultural building a little bit, coming from a technical background, I assume it might be challenging to think about some of this aspect of cultural building, right? What has been some of the resources or methods that's been most useful for you when it comes to defining company culture as well as scaling company culture as company growth? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there are not very good you know, resources out there, probably because there aren't that many global companies at our stage. I mean, there are a lot of global companies, that, but there are more like enterprises. I don't think there are that many like Series B stage companies that are spread across the globe like us. So what I resort to is, you know, I try to read a lot of blogs and books and guidance on you know, building a great company and just like apply that to our situation. Not all of that applies because, you know, it's not written specifically for global companies, but, you know, I, I try to take lessons out of that. And then, you know, I talk to other startup founders that have built successful global companies. Not very often because, you know, they're busier than I am. <laughs> But, you know, I try to do that sometimes. And then I don't always look for resources outside. I try to talk to our team, our employees, what they feel about the company's culture. There are things that needs to be addressed. If there's things that are not being addressed, you know, issues that persist, things like that. You know, I work with the people and culture team, HR teams in both US and Korea to, you know, diagnose these things and work together to solve these any, any issues that arise. And then, you know, COVID is another you know, layer of challenge that I think if we had more like global offsite or like get together events early on, I think we 
could have been better off, but no, COVID, that wasn't possible. So yeah. soon to do something like that. Sure. Just zooming in more on that idea of global regions, right? And pre-emphasizing that a supervisor has about over 100 employees across three offices in the US, Korea, and Japan. Zooming back into this whole idea of international expansion and global management, what do you see to be some of the major challenges of running a remote-first company? So just being able to communicate in real time, that's a big challenge. Not just cross-border, but within, even for our US team. You know, we're spread across different time zones. We have like East Coast, West Coast, we have someone in Hawaii as well. Being able to work in different time zones, people are not going to be like as responsible as someone that's like working right next to you on site at an office, right? So you have to adjust to that. And then the same challenge goes on for cross-border collaboration because there's like, what, 12 hours difference. So there needs to be a better process to you know, communicating and then like decision-making, logging things so that anybody can just like look up those uh, whenever they're curious. And then, you know, I've seen cases where there are misunderstandings that come from the language barrier, right? So I've been trying to address that. We now have like a full-time translator that, you know, comes on to like these cross-border meetings. I mean, we do have a lot of like bilinguals in Korea, but there are people that are not bilingual. So for those cases, we have the full-time translator now. Yeah, I think those are the major challenges. There are some also minor things, like the business practice is a bit different for each country, but I think that's more minor. So thanks for highlighting those, both cultural differences as well as communication in real time. And I think that as the company grows, and I think those can get sharpened and refined over time. So SuperBI has recently raised $60 million in Series B funding. What fundraising advice could you give to founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? Well, first off, it's not a great time to raise funding now. <laughs> so that's, that's my number one advice. I think there is a lot of value to you know, getting funding from like well-known, renowned VCs. But there are also drawbacks too. So I wouldn't always like optimize for the name value and actually try to build a relationship with VCs in advance and see if that's someone that you're willing to, you know, build a company together with for the like, next 10 years, right? Especially if the investor is coming onto your board, that person will be making major decisions with you for the next decade. So like consider it like almost like how you, find your co-founder. You know how you know people say finding a co-founder is like finding someone to marry? I wouldn't say it's the same as that for finding investors, but you know, you see what I mean. You know, you'll see the board members for a decade, like once every quarter, you know, you'll, you'll discuss major issues. They'll be influencing the whole company direction and you know, future decisions for, for a long time. So be careful who you add to your board. <laughs> I see. So really the past year is like be really deliberate and careful on choosing the right investors because you know you're gonna stick with that person for a very long time and that person have huge influence for the startup journey, right? Yep. And finally to conclude our main question, reflecting on your experience in both the academic and startup world, what are the differences and similarities that you observe between being a researcher and being a founder? One thing that comes to my mind is if you're a researcher, you can work on any topic that you want. But I mean, 
if you want to get like more citations, then you obviously want to work on some topic that's more like popular in the academia. But I think if you're a founder, you have to build a product that someone will use. It's not an option. Like if you build something that like you just want to build and like no one actually uses it, your, your company's going to go dead. But if you're in academia, you're free to work on a research topic that you're interested in. And like, even if like not many people will cite you for your work, I mean, you're free to do it, right? For the sake of it. And, uh, you know, you might work on a research topic that will have an impact in like 10 years, right? That's a worthwhile research. But if you're building a product for a founder, you don't want to build something that people will use in 10 years, right? You have to time it very well. I think that's one of the biggest differences being a researcher versus founder. So it's sort of the constraining optionality as well yeah. as determining and sort of the short-term versus long-term optimization. Right, yeah. That's one, one of the differences. Yeah, there are a lot, many that I couldn't think of, but... Absolutely. So here at this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, which yeah. will ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you could provide a quick answers for the listeners. Okay. Number one, name three people in the broader AI community whose work you admire. So first one, I think I have to mention Andrew not just for like the research, of course, you know, his research is very, very impactful. But, you know, his work on like, the whole data-centric AI movement, I think, you know, I couldn't agree more with that. I'll have to pick him. And then also the second one would be like Andre Kaparthi. Also for his contribution in the AI community in terms of like his educational side of things, his lectures, I think those were another way to like democratize AI. And then thirdly, I like Ian Goodfellow, his works on GANs. I think that basically opened up my eyes to a whole new sector of computer vision. So those three. Yeah. Andrew Ng, Andrew Kapati, and Ian Goodfellow. Yeah. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. I'd say Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I think it's the first book that I read before founding the company. And finally, imagine that you can share a single piece of advice to all the academics slash researchers turned early stage fathers on LinkedIn. What could you share? I think I would say don't get too bogged down in the tech. As a previous academic myself, I was at once, you know, into like the tech and for example like machine learning algorithmic performance was a big thing for me but then you know productizing and you know selling it and doing all the go-to-market it's a whole different story so if you're too bogged down with the technology you won't be able to like productize it you know and actually actually build a business around it so not all good technology you know leads to good company so that'll be yeah. advice. Absolutely. I think that's a very succinct way to uh, end our conversation. So Hoon, I really enjoy having this conversation with you today, learning about your personal upbringing in different continents, your time as an undergrad and later PhD student at Duke University, gaining interest in robotics and deep learning, your brief period working at SK Telecom in Korea, the funny story of Super BI, 
uh, going through Wacombinator, the product development from the initial labeling solution to the current platform, the automation focus as well as the data ops product, as well as your general perspective regarding how the product roadmap can evolve to reflect the current industry-wide pinpoint. We also talk about high-level technical strategy related to go-to-market partnership, hiring, culture, building, fundraising, and you know running a reverse-first company. I'm sure that a lot of people listen to this conversation can uh, you know gain valuable you know lesson and insights from your experience running Super AI. And uh, we should include everything that we discuss today in the show notes, so listeners have a chance to follow up, take a look, and learn more about our current journey. So yeah, Hun, it's been a wonderful one and a half hours having this conversation with you, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. All right, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.